Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Today, we're uh, starting a new series. Uh, We're starting a series called Staying Engaged. And what we're doing in that series is examining healthy relationships through the lens of biblical teaching on marriage. So obviously, if you're here today and you're married, this series really applies to you. But if you're here today and you're single and you want to be married someday, or if you're single and you have no intention of ever being married, if you have been married in the past and you want to be married again, if you've been married in the past and you have no intention of ever being married again, it still applies to you. Because the reality is all of us want close meaningful, lasting relationships. And we're going to take a look at what it means to have those kinds of relationships. And we're going to spend time looking at it through the lens of the closest relationship human, a human can ever have, that of marriage. Over the next six weeks, we're going to be discussing that. And my hope for all of us during this time is that we can all grow in our depth and freedom and enjoyment and love of the close relationships in our life, especially in our marriages over the next few weeks. So the theme is staying engaged. And I realize that theme uh, could mean a lot to a lot of different people. Some of you probably hear that theme, staying engaged, and you go, well, yeah, yeah, I want to get back to the feelings of what it was like when I was engaged, all those feelings. And that probably sounds like a really good goal for you, and that's fantastic. Others of you are here, and you're going, ah, I've been married for a while. And longer I'm married, it feels a little bit like, um, feels a little bit like, uh, the marriage is running on two train tracks right next to each other. And once in a while we get really close and there's always a little bit of distance. So we've figured out our own routine, but we're still kind of just on parallel tracks and kind of a little bit disengaged. And you're kind of going, I'd like a little bit more, but some of you, some of you are really struggling, I know, in your marriage. Even today, some of you may have been driving in thinking, is this all there is? I know we're going to this series on marriage. Is this all there is? Is this all I can expect? And frankly, I suspect more than likely, just odds are that there are some of you that are here are thinking, I wonder if my life is going to go to the disengaged point of divorce. It's a very real issue that a lot of us face and think about. What does it take to stay engaged in our marriages, in our relationships. In fact, I know that every single one of us here have experienced woundedness in our past in our relationships of varying degrees, and that woundedness comes out. Even if it's not in your marriage relationship, if it's in another relationship, it can still come out in your own marriage relationship or your close relationships and keep causing problems, keep causing arguments. And some of you may just because of that be asking the question, is it even possible from where I'm at in my marriage right now or my relationships right now, is it even possible to have a great relationship? And I want to just say straight up front, yes, absolutely. It is possible to have not only a good but a great marriage, a great friendship, a great relationship, but it's also hard work. It's a lot of hard work. It's hard work for me. It's hard work for you. It's hard work for anyone. And I realize our culture would say to that, love shouldn't be so hard. I mean, how many of you have heard this? Love shouldn't be so hard. If it's really love, it's not hard. And I just want to ask, really? What other relationship in life, what other situation in life where there's a really good fit, is it not hard to have something that's good or great and lasting and enduring? I mean, I'd like to challenge you to ask Derek Jeter, just because he had a great fit for baseball, was it really hard and difficult for him to maintain and get to the point of Hall of Fame status for years? 
I mean, what other relationship, what other area of life where we are born with a good fit, good compatibility, good talent, good mix, is it not hard and difficult to go from just boring or bad or average to good or great in a relationship? And why would we think that love in a relationship, especially in marriage, that lasts any length of time, that has any beauty to its depth and quality, why would we not think that that would be something that would be hard, that would require hard work? See, a great marriage is possible, even if it's not so good right now. Even if it's in a bad place right now, it's possible to have a great marriage, even between people who have high degrees of of compatibility. You'll need to work at it, to stay engaged. The Bible talks a lot about marriage. It talks about marriage from the very beginning. Uh, God himself officiates the very first marriage in all of History And interestingly enough, the Bible ends with God officiating another marriage. And all throughout the Bible, the Bible uses marriage as an illustration to talk about the most profound spiritual and relational and healthy relationship truths in all of life constantly. In the very beginning, we see God creating. And God's going along and creating. He says, yep, that's good. Yep, that is really good. I really like that. Yep, that is good. And then all of a sudden, God says, oop, that's not good. And it's in Genesis 2, 18. Says the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper, a, a mate suitable for him. See, God sees loneliness in relationship and he says, it's not good. It's not what I want for you. And he created us for relationship from the very, very beginning. God created the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. It's not something that was dreamed up in the late Bronze Age. It's something God created. It's a gift he gives us. And even in that gift, though, it's hard. It's got its peaks and valleys. It's got its difficulties in life to get there. And too many of us, too many of us, including Wendy and I, struggle with those peaks and valleys. We all do. But too many of us don't get to where we want in marriage. We don't stay engaged. I want to spend a little bit of time before we jump into the biblical side of it, looking at what our society thinks about marriage and the stereotypes that we often face and in the male and female relationships and the jokes that we hear going around around marriage and around stuff that we sometimes laugh at and sometimes we actually use them in arguments as ammo uh, to, to win our argument, don't we? But if I want to start by thinking about what, what would happen if the vows that we took on our wedding day reflected maybe a little bit more of the reality of what our marriage is like on a day-to-day basis. So just imagine for me a second, a beautiful couple standing up here and I'm about to give them their vows and I would look at them and I would say something like this. I would say, Dave, repeat after me. I, Dave, take you, Danica, to be my lawfully wedded starter wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, as long as you always adore me and look really hot to me. Right? And the tears and the hankies come out as the vows are going and all this beauty is on. I take you for better and for better. For richer and richer and richer while we're going into debt to ensure that we have all the things that make us feel like we are, can feel good about ourselves and each other. And let me take an aside. We have a Financial Peace University class coming up on January 25th that starts during 9.15 service. And if you are married here and you struggle with peace and finances being in the same sentence, take that class. 
It'll help you put those two words together in that same sentence in your marriage. The vows might go on and say something like this, to join with you in this life in everything where your needs and mine agree and to ignore you when your needs are too much for me to handle, to speak kindly to you as long as you speak kindly to me and make me feel good about myself and to yell at you when you don't to make you either comply or drop the subject, to be faithful to you as long as you meet all my needs for a thrill and to demand that you not make a, deal, make a big deal out of me going to Hooters or watching Little Skin when you don't, right? Till divorce or death, but most likely divorce do us part, right? And then the woman's vows. I, Danica, take you, Dave, to be my lawfully wedded starter husband, to have and to hold from this day forward as long as you are always sensitive to my, sensitive to my emotions and my needs and can correctly interpret my subtle and not-so-subtle hints, you thick-headed, dull, testosterone-filled animal. Right? I take you for better and for better and even better. As long as that richer and better can come within a 40-hour work week or less and never more and our kids can have all the opportunities that, our, that their friends have and all the opportunities that I wanted to have as a child but could never have. To join with you as long as you agree and when you don't, to use a combination of freezing you out with em- and emotions to get you to go along with what I want. To promise to be faithful to you as long as you meet my needs for romance better than my favorite movies or the man at the office. Till death or divorce, most likely death, or most likely divorce, or your death, sorry, part, make, do us part. And then the ring ceremony goes on. We always pick up the ring. That's such a beautiful ceremony, right? And the wedding ring is a symbol of today's Suggestions, I mean vows. The unending circle of the ring represents the unending circle of the challenges that lie ahead. Right? I mean, if, if our vows reflected the maybe a little bit of the day-to-day reality of the difficulties, the ups and downs we experience, they might actually sound in, a, in our American culture a little bit more like that. And before we get into the Bible's view, I want to look even more at our culture's view. And I'm going to give you some statistics about how our culture actually has increasingly looked at marriage through a fearful and pessimistic lens. Um, most, of the, most of the research I'm, I'm quoting to you is from the University of Virginia's Marriage Project Research one of the largest marriage research projects in the nation. They've taken thousands of couples and followed them over a long period of time, and they also borrow other universities' studies as well, include in their, in their stuff. And through that research, we see an, a, a tremendous in, uh, pessimism about marriage in America today. And we can see it even just in the number of people who are married. In 1970, 72% of adults were married. Today, only 50% of adults are married. The divorce rate since 1970 has nearly doubled. In 1970, 77% of first marriages were still intact, meaning 23% had divorced. Today, 61% of first marriages are intact, meaning 39% have divorced. Now, I know all of you have heard that whole 50% divorce number. Well, that, that divorce number is measuring something different when they talk about 50%. It's measuring the number of marriages in a given year compared to the number of divorces in a given year, and you have to stack up all the second, third, and fourth divorces and all that stuff going on in that to get that 50%. But it all contributes to the pessimism we have about marriage in America today. In fact, even when we look at stable marriage, we often have a pessimistic view. Our culture does and talks about it very often. The comedian Chris Rock, I think, summarizes it in a very interesting, short way. Chris Rock says, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Right? 
I mean, Rock's pithy way of saying it reflects a widespread belief in America today that says basically with 39% of first marriages ending in a divorce, that means obviously the other 61% that are still married, a lot of them must be really unhappy. And so marriage is really an awful thing to be. And because we see this in our culture, our culture is now facing two really prominent widespread arguments in academics and in talk shows alike. And the first argument is because we're living longer, monogamy is not such a viable option anymore. And the argument basically goes like this. It says all relationships all throughout history have experienced difficulty. And because we're living longer, we experience more difficulty. And with that much extra difficulty, water, difficult water running under the bridge, we can't expect for the relationship to stay really beautiful and strong and healthy long term. And therefore, we should just accept divorce and the fact that people are going to have multiple partners more often, right? That's one argument that's very prominent. You hear it on all the talk shows. You hear it in the academic studies going on right now and the, and the discussions. The other argument that's very strong in our culture is this, that living together before marriage is a good way to just help you decide whether you are really compatible long term, right? So we saw in the statistics in 1960, it was virtually no one living together outside of marriage. But today, 25% of women, 25 to 39, are currently, right now, as of this moment, living with someone outside of marriage. And by their late 30s, most women, 60%, will have lived with a man outside of marriage. And yet, and yet, with all the pessimism and reticence to jump into marriage out there, the university of the one up north, uh, in a study, says this. It says, high school seniors still across all that time have a strong, steady dream of long-term relationship and marriage being something that's vital to a rich and full life. See, the desire for lifelong marriage in our culture has not changed. What has changed is the level of disillusionment around the dream and the belief that it can happen. Now, the Bible's answer uh, to, the, to the marriage issue isn't so much to give practical tips and tools, although it does, and we're going to talk about practical things each and every message throughout this series. But the Bible spends more of its time trying to give us a bigger dream, a more beautiful vision of what marriage can be. Today we're going to begin to look at two of the main texts that give us the most on marriage, Ephesians 5 and the creation account. And we're just going to read through the Ephesians 5, uh, starting in verse 21, which deals specifically with marriage. It reads this. It says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And notice this passage doesn't start by reinforcing the ultra-traditional view that women have to submit to men. It actually starts by saying this is about mutual submission, man to woman, woman to man, friend to friend, human to human. And then it goes on in it to attempt to describe in terms that culture of that day would have easily understood what this mutual submission might look like. And it talks this way. It says, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And you got to understand, this is a shockingly radical confrontation of traditional men's roles in the day that it was written. This was like, in your face, man, I am telling you to be completely different than culture tells you to be like. 
in that day. Verse 28 goes on and says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and he's actually quoting Genesis, the creation account now. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Can we just pause and pray? Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and be with us right now, that you would help us. Under all of the wounds, all of the baggage that we have, all of the cultural stereotypes we believe, would you help us to recover some of the dreams that we've been disillusioned over about our relationships? And would you help us to be able to see your beautiful intention, your deep loving, enduring relationship that you want us to walk in, in marriage, in friendship, in all of our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a rich passage, and it begins by stating the subject, mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's basically saying, I want you to learn to love like Christ loved each other, loved you, to have this extravagant love. And Paul also, in this text, though, feeds, I think, into some of the struggles we have. He says, this is a profound mystery. And we all say about marriage, yeah, it sure is. I mean, how many times have you a man said, uh, you men said, I don't know if I will ever understand a woman. And you women have said, I don't ever know if the men will ever understand me, right? We say that, right? Women baffle men and women are baffled by men. We get that. And we think, when we think of those issues and we think of this mystery, we so easily fall into our culture's discouraged view of marriage and we become fearful, we become cautious, we become discouraged. We hope to have a great marriage, but we're not sure we can. And yet, here's the interesting part, yet the reality of marriage, even in America today, when it's studied, is so radically different than our perceptions of it, than the culture's perceptions. Let's take, for example, I mean, we understand that the divorce rate is high, right? It's gone up. But if you wait to have a baby till after you're married, if you are involved, actively involved in your faith, if you are not a high school dropout, if you don't get married before 18, if you're not living in poverty, your odds of divorce go astronomically down. In fact, your odds of divorce are really, really quite low. Further, studies consistently show that living together before marriage doesn't do anything positive for the odds of your marriage surviving, and it actually has a negative correlation towards satisfaction. When they study how satisfied people are after marriage who lived together before, they are consistently less satisfied than those who waited to live together for marriage. A solid majority of married people actually, when they're surveyed, indicate the highest level of satisfaction. They check off, I am very happy in my marriage. 61% do check off the highest level. Much to the contrary of, of the popular opinion that people are unhappy, that's not true. Furthermore, there's this common myth even about sex that the thrill of the hunt and the romance of sex before marriage is so much more exciting than the boring sex after marriage. But the reality of the studies are 
consistently for the last 20 years, over and over again, almost every study has shown that married people have more sex and say they are more satisfied and more fulfilled with their sexual life than people who are having sex outside of marriage. It's, it's amazing, the difference. In fact, even the people on the studies who say, I'm unhappy in my marriage, who check that box, Longitudinal studies have shown that if they will stick together, stay engaged in the relationship, that five years later, two-thirds of them check the box that they're happy in their marriage. It's amazing. It's consistent. It's across the board in the studies. So what, are, so what we're saying is if you think your marriage seems horrible right now, if you will choose not to get divorced, choose to re-engage your odds are that in less than five years, you will be checking the happy box on your marriage. Marriage also, the studies show, is, creates a markedly better uh, physical health life. It creates better mental health for you. Uh, married people make more money, are wealthier, uh, and they do better in their jobs when compared to single people with the same education, abilities, and job tracks. And yet... With the reality of the scientific evidence painting such a great pos- a, 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 a greater positive view of marriage, still the University of Virginia's National Marriage Project will say that barely a third of high school seniors seem to believe that marriage is more beneficial to individuals than the alternatives. So the question is, why the huge disconnect? Why the disconnect? Why, why the positive reality of the science and yet the negative perceptions, especially among younger people? I think Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, hits the nail on the head when he examines the two most common views of marriage over the last couple hundred years. This is the traditional view of marriage. And he explains that that really was more about, the traditional view was more about uh, the couple being committed to one another, almost a sense of duty to the spouse and the family. And the Protestant and the Catholic uh, addition to that traditional view was that marriage was a sacrament of God and, and you were supposed to subordinate your own interests to the common good, to choose to love sacrificially whether you felt like it or not. And marriage in the traditional view is the building block of all civilization. Over the past 50 years, the individualism of of the Enlightenment era has uh, redefined marriage in America in in an increasingly way, in an increasing way, because it reacts against that sense of duty and sacrifice and instead focuses on self-actualization of the individual and finding emotional and sexual fulfillment. So it's no longer it's no longer about the sacrament or a social contract for the good of the other or all, but it's a contract for mutual self-fulfillment and personal growth. So marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me, Keller concludes. Now, The critique, interestingly enough, in our culture of traditional marriage is that traditional marriage is oppressive. But ironically, the studies show that the new view of marriage is actually more oppressive than the old traditional view. It's leading to greater levels of disillusionment and depression and pessimism. It's leading to hugely warped views, even in comparison to reality about marriage. It leaves people trapped between still desiring something beautiful, something enduring, something meaningful, and feeling like those longings are unrealistic and unfulfillable. In its individual idealism, it's actually created greater 
hopelessness and oppression of marriage, even preventing it from achieving the desired results in our own lifetime. As this new uh, view of marriage takes hold, we continue to see divorce rates increase, not decrease. See, what we want now in marriage in today's world is we want a perfect soulmate. We want chemistry. We want compatibility. And the researchers, when they try to get behind what that definition of compatibility means, because that's what eHarmony tells us, right? That's what Match.com tells us, is we want compatibility to have a successful marriage. And so they've researched. What does that mean? And the top two answers in the research come out this way. They say, number one is compatibility means physical attractiveness and sexual chemistry at the core. And the second aspect of compatibility is finding someone who will not insist or pressure me to change. They will love me just as I am, right? And see, the search for chemistry has actually changed even the definition of manhood. Under traditional marriage and a traditional society, the definition of manhood was based upon character, on the ability for the man to be strong with self-restraint and self-control for the good of others, a sense of duty to care and make others better and make life better. But under the new definition of marriage, the, the definition of manhood is all centered around instant attraction and freedom and sexual conquest. And really, it's about the same for women, isn't it? And we see that all over the movies and all over the reality shows, right? And the second issue of compatibility, the not insisting that I change, the accepting me just as I am, leaves us in the point where what we're looking for in a spouse, what we're looking for in a mate is a low-maintenance pers- low person without any personal issues who's completely healthy, happy, and interesting. And the reality is finding that type of person or being that type of person is hugely oppressive and depressing and anxiety-producing for us because we all realize there is no one out there like that, and I am certainly not like that as a person. See, the new values driving marriage and dating both want way too much out of the person. They want perfection and no maintenance, and they don't want nearly enough out of the person in terms of commitment and faithfulness and what I would describe as really true love. So what is the mystery of marriage that Paul alludes to that can lead us into this beautiful lifelong desires he has for us. Well, we're going to just start with that. We're going to continue over the next few weeks to look at it more. But I think today we can start by looking at how verse 25 is defined, is defining further the opening command. Remember, the opening command is this, mutually submit to one another. That term submit is actually a military term, and we all understand that. You go into the military, and when, you, when you're there, you are not in control of all your decisions, and your needs do not come before the greater good. And you have a higher order, a higher authority to whom you are submitted and you answer to. And actually, that's painting a perfect picture of this text because the context of this text is Paul trying to teach us how we learn to be filled with and led and controlled by the Holy Spirit, by God himself in our lives, our higher power. Our higher power. Paul defines submission vividly in verse 25, and in it, he's addressing men, but I think it equally applies to all of us, women and friends and all of us. It's a way of life in relationships. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when we study 
how outrageously giving and kind and patient and generous Jesus really is and get that picture down clear in our life, that becomes this amazing picture then for staying engaged in relationship and what a healthy relationship is. And Jesus actually himself illustrates it further when he says in Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. For me. Again, he's returning to that, the same thing Paul is talking about, returning to that authority, the authority to whom we submit in becoming other-centered. See, what he's saying to us is we can't walk fully into this mystery of a great marriage unless we're submitted to God, unless we're submitted to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know, I hear this all the time. Some people will object to that and say, I know people who have really great marriages who are not followers of Christ, who don't really even believe in them, aren't even sure about God's existence, and they have great marriages. And I'd say, yes, absolutely, that's reality. But I'd say further reality is that we're all created in the image of God. We're all created with a conscience. And when we walk in ways of thinking and acting that are in line with how God created us, regardless of whether we believe in him, we're going to experience a measure of the goodness that God intends And I would submit to you that there is even so much more goodness when we're also properly aligned with him. Paul is also in this text, though, pinpointing what I think is the biggest problem in all of our marriages, my marriage, your marriage, every marriage that exists in trying to love others like Christ loved the church and give ourselves up for them. The problem is this. It's self-centeredness. It's the difference between self-centeredness and other-centeredness. Now, how do we look at that practically? Well, what happens at a practical level in our marriage is you meet someone, you fall in love with them, at least at least you fall in love with how they make you feel about yourself. And you're attracted to them and they're attracted to you and they make you feel wonderful unless, of course, it's an arranged marriage or you're 28 marrying a 90-year-old billionaire, right? Then it might not have all those wonderful feelings attached to it. But we have all those feelings generally, all those enamored feelings. And then inevitably... After a year, maybe if we're lucky, two years, you begin to realize how selfish they are and how much more selfish they are than you are in your life, right? And you start to have arguments and you get hurt and you say rash things and you say things in anger that wound each other and you start to have these wounds that come up over and over again. And even though you say you forgive them, a month or a year later, that same wound comes back up when you say, you always are blankety-blank, whatever this, you know, I mean, it just comes up. And and you say things like, you know, you really have a problem and you need to grow. And until you deal with this, our relationship can't go any further. And we're we're tending to get into these arguments with our spouse. and, And then kids come along and the arguments change and we start having arguments about you need to work less, you need to, you need to not go play golf or whatever you do for fun or as much and we have arguments about that and somebody says, you always work too much and then the other person retorts and says, but you always, but you always demand too much flexibility and you don't understand what it takes to be successful and to make this kind of a standard of living for us and, and, and then we also say things like, you're just like your mom or you're just like your dad. And we're not talking about the nice part of our mom and dad that we like, right? And if this goes on long enough, your woundedness and your spouse's selfishness hurt so much that you begin to bargain, sometimes openly with them, sometimes quietly in your head, saying things like, if you don't bug me about this one, I won't bug you. And we... Tend to, when we do that, get along a little bit better, but 
Christmas rolls around, we walk under the mistletoe or New Year's Eve comes along and the ball drops and we kiss and it's just a little bit more forced than it used to be. You see, your woundedness comes to the forefront of your relationships. And if my spouse, we think, if my spouse would just treat me better, maybe I would heal. Maybe I could trust him or her again. And we live with our wounds either exposed and bleeding in defensive arguments or we live focusing on protecting our wounds and keeping a little bit of distance and disengaging. And so we end up, like our culture, starting to blame our unhappiness and our lack of change in our relationships on the pain the others create in our life, the insensitivity that they have to our woundedness. If only they would recognize that woundedness in me and be nicer, then we could be happy and things would change. The problem is they're the same person you were enamored with not that long ago. And what we need to wrestle with in order to be really, truly happy in our marriage is that our sin, our self-centeredness, preceded our woundedness. See, if we allow our woundedness to be the first focus in a relationship, if you allow that, you'll never heal. Your spouse will never heal. Your marriage will never heal. Your friendships will never heal. Your work relationships will never heal if you allow your woundedness to be the first focus and first priority in your relationships. If you want to grow into a happy, fulfilling, beautiful, lifelong marriage, Paul says our focus has to be on ourselves first, laying down our self-centeredness and becoming other-centered in active love and see our own self-centeredness as more serious of a problem than the wounds inflicted by our mate or by our friend or by our family member. To stop even comparing ourselves. Who cares if we think in reality is that they're more selfish than we are? But just to stop comparing ourselves, to stop being defensive, and instead to start by focusing on your own self-centeredness and inviting Jesus into that place with you to bring healing to that place, to bring a sense of identity, to bring a sense of healing to the woundedness. See, that's the only way we can ever love fully, love sacrificially, love powerfully like Jesus loved us. And the point is, Jesus didn't regard the wounds as barriers to relationship when he came to us either. I mean, we hurled plenty of things at him. We've hurled in our own lives. We've hurled plenty of insults at God, accusing him of things that aren't true and turning cold shoulders to him and doing things that would wound him. And and yet he doesn't count his rights as God as something to exert defensively or offensively, to exert him in a way to overpower us and prove that he's right and prove that we really are the ones that are selfish and he's not. And, but rather he comes to us in ways that we can receive him. He comes to us offering forgiveness. He comes to us taking the pain even though he doesn't deserve it. I mean, I deserve some of the wrath of Wendy. I do. I've sinned against her. I've hurt her so many times. But Jesus takes your wrath, he takes my wrath, and he serves us and loves us and forgives us and woos us. And in losing his life, he gains everything. You see, the ultra-conservative traditional view of marriage is that women must submit to men, but Jesus says no. No, it's mutual submission. And it looks like each of you learning to love the other like I loved you, even when 
actually know, especially when it hurts, to still choose to act in love and serve in love. But the modern view of marriage says, no, it's not about duty and serving such oppressive thoughts. It's about self-fulfillment, how it makes me feel. As long as it makes me feel sexy and powerful and good and promotes my dreams, then marriage makes sense. But Jesus says those who try to save their life will lose it. Those who are self-centered will not get what they want. They'll get depression and they'll get the fear and the pessimism that our culture is experiencing right now in regard to marriage that is way out of reality even. God says, lose your life, not for another, not for another, but surrender your life to me so you can love like me. Surrender your identity, surrender your dreams, surrender your happiness, surrender your woundedness, not expecting your spouse to heal it, but expecting me to heal it is what Jesus is saying to us. And the person who is willing to love like that, the text says, will find, will find And it goes on to describe these brilliant, beautiful terms. It says, we'll find a radiant life, this beautiful, bright, colorful life. We'll find a life without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish without any plastic surgery. You'll find holiness, a term designed to to define the greatness of God. That's how great, he says, you will find your marriage and your relationships to be and blameless. But it's so easy for us to fall into our relationships and, and to, to respond out of our woundedness instead of our love for God, to demand that my needs be met, to demand that my rights be granted out of our self-centeredness. And, and really, our self-centeredness comes in two forms. It comes in the form of I'm wonderful, I'm better, I'm, my self-centeredness is less than yours, and therefore you should change. I love better, I'm more patient, I care more, I invest more, I care better, and therefore my woundedness and my feelings are more important, and you are the problem in this relationship, not me. That's one form of self-centeredness. The other form of self-centeredness is hopelessness. I can never change. I'm a failure. Why try? I'll just keep trying to get along and avoid the things that cause blow-ups to just keep things going. And both kinds of self-centeredness cause us to disengage from the relationship in some way and disengage from acting in a loving manner. And the invitation of Jesus for us throughout this whole series is to become like Him, to stay engaged in our relationships, centered in following the leading of His Holy Spirit, getting our primary needs for identity, for acceptance, for love met through Him so that we can choose to lay down our rights because we're so loved by Him to love sacrificially the others in our life, our spouse, our friends, our family. And when two people in marriage get that kind of love going and get that picture, wow, the change that happens, the beauty that happens. But even if even if only one person in the marriage gets that and starts to act like that, even if it's unilaterally initiated, just like Jesus unilaterally initiated love toward us and forgiveness toward us. It becomes this winsome power that still brings greater beauty to your life and to the life of your marriage. See, by losing your life in loving service, you will find immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine for in your marriage, in your friendships, in your work relationships. In essence, this is, this is the essence of the gospel. 
This is the essence of the good news of Jesus. So what does this practically mean in our daily living? Two things, I think. I think our, our action points today are this, changing our focus from where, our wound, from where we are wounded and how the other person has contributed to that wound to God and saying, God, how do you want to heal that woundedness, woundedness in me regardless of whether my spouse ever changes or not? God, how do you want to heal that woundedness in me? Right? And second, God, how, how do you want me to act in love toward my spouse? How, how do you see my spouse? How do you see how you want me to be part of extending your forgiveness to them? How do you want me to be part of restoring them to the beauty that you created them to be? Where do you want me, whether I feel like it or not, to take an active step to love? I want to just uh, start where Paul asks us to start because he doesn't ask us to do this on our own. He asks us to start this by relying on the Spirit of God, by inviting the Holy Spirit to come to us and interact with us. So uh, as the worship team comes back, we're just going to pause, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where is my woundedness, where has my woundedness been getting in the way of me loving Where have I been expecting my spouse to heal me and not you? And how do you want to come to me now to start that healing process? And how can you help me take an act of love today, whether I feel like it or not, that would really be the kind of thing you want to give to my spouse today? Lord, we ask that your spirit would come to each of us right now and that you would speak to us. Lord, we worship you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.